I want to empower us women to stop actually buying into all the perceptions that are put on us. We are told, you know, we don't have uh, sexual desires or we have very low sexual desires. We are told we are the reasons we are fitna to men. And we need to stop the propagation of these uh, perceptions about us, especially Muslim women. In addition, which is more important, we need to stop believing that. Because see, if we don't believe this as individuals, we can actually go on and move forward. The problem is when we personally believe them. Sexually empowered women and pious women are not mutually exclusive. You're listening to Unsween and Unfilter the Podcast, Episode 4 of Season 3. The topic of intimacy in Islam is a conversation that may at times come laced with shame and stigma. In today's episode, I sit down with Nohal Shukairi to dismantle the misinformation surrounding this, while also educating women about their rights, the power of no in a marriage, and diving deeper into what is haram versus halal. How did we deviate so much from the days of our Prophet, peace be upon him, when it comes to seeking knowledge and empowering ourselves in terms of intimacy in Islam? How have we allowed a wall of shame to be built around this very discussion while also allowing it to become halal overnight when someone gets married? This may be the first time, but hopefully not the last time, I'll have this conversation where we dive deep into sexual intimacy from the perspective of our faith. Oftentimes, we avoid discussing the topic of sex and intimacy due to cultural ills, but this is truly a disservice to our ummah as well as Islam, which empowers women as a whole. I'm excited to be joined by Noha today, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist who will help us answer the many questions we all have, especially the ones we may be too shy or too embarrassed to ask. Moving past the birds and the bees talk, I wanted to finally understand the rights we have in Islam when it comes to being emotionally and physically intimate with our significant other. Some of the topics Noha addresses are the differences in sexual desires between partners, what is deemed to be absolutely haram and what comes with the difference of opinion, lack of sexual compatibility and physical intimacy between couples, as well as bleeding on the first night and the pressure placed on couples to consummate their marriage right away. We cover this and so much more, and I can't thank Noha enough for being a resource in this sometimes uncomfortable but necessary conversation. I do want to mention that this is a very mature conversation and I typically don't like to place an age limit on these episodes. So please do navigate this as you see fit when it comes to your children who may be listening alongside you. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me, Noha. You know, this conversation is much needed and it's based upon the amount of gray area surrounding this topic. Not only that, but even me as an adult woman who is in her 30s, I personally have so many unanswered questions. You know, I never had the privilege of having the birds and the bees talk with my parents. And part of me feels like, okay, I'm glad that didn't happen because it could get a little awkward. But I feel like sometimes this conversation is intentionally neglected by our community. And I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone, but I just feel like sometimes we feel like if we shame it and the less we talk about it, the less sex will happen outside of marriage. And that has actually been proven untrue, to be honest. All we're doing is creating deception around this topic instead of education around this topic. And I can't thank you enough, Naha, for for doing this. Um, There's not a lot of people talking about this. And if there is, forgive me. I want to commend them as well for bringing up this subject. But I would love for you to introduce yourself and then we can get right into it. 
Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I'm very delighted to be with you because I'm like you. I love to empower our community with knowledge that is actually coming from our faith because I love our faith. And I think there are so many beautiful areas that are not discussed enough. So my name is Noha Shukairi. I'm a marriage and family therapist in uh, California, and I have been married, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, for 36 years. I have four adult children. My eldest is going to be 35 this year, inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> and my youngest, and my youngest is going to be 29. And then I have, alhamdulillah, Allah blessed us with five grandchildren. And inshallah. my eldest grandchild is going to be five, inshallah. And my youngest grandchild is going to be... Two, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I lose track. Two years old is an exciting time. My nephew is about to turn two. And it's just so interesting to see them develop their own personality, mashallah, and everything like that. So inshallah, Allah blesses you and your family. So thank you once again for taking the time to discuss this topic. You know, it's interesting. I came across a website. It was called, I believe, aboutislam.net. And they said something that I felt like was very true. They said marriage is the longest, most continuous act of worship. And they also said it's a partnership between two people who seek to please God and that sexual intimacy between spouses is a spark that strengthens this bond. And we don't think about that because again, we don't talk about that. So how can we even ever imagine that being the spark of an actual relationship if it's something that we don't discuss? I think something that I found to be very difficult was the transition from being unmarried to married. And what I mean by that is the topic of sex was shamed, not necessarily in my household, but even just outside of our household. In general, our external community, I felt like it was very shameful. You don't talk about it. It's aib. And then all of a sudden you get married and it becomes halal overnight, this conversation. It becomes halal, but it doesn't come with any education or any resources. So sometimes you don't even know what's to come when you do get married. And then you have your wedding night. And what I really want to talk about is how shaming is steeped in ignorance and lack of knowledge. And I think sometimes our community doesn't purposely maybe shame it. It's because maybe that generation as well as our generation wasn't educated on it too much. So what I want to talk about is how did we lose the education behind this? Because I've read stories about how there were, you know, back in our prophets, peace be upon him, back in his days, this conversation was very open. There were women that would actually approach the prophet with their own intimacy questions. So how can we have that type of relationship in the past, in the prophet's days, and yet we've lost it in today's day and age. What are your thoughts on that or your personal opinion? Um, so whenever we talk about taboo topics in our community, we need to distinguish between what Islam says and what the culture says, because I think a lot of the problems in talking about this topic arise actually from the culture. And mashallah, within the Muslim community, we are so blessed. Our strength that we have so many cultures within our ummah. Like, you know, at least we have different, at least 80 different ethnic groups. So imagine each one of them bringing into the, the pot of the ummah all these different cultures, associated ideas uh, associated about sex. So the two become mixed up and unfortunately not to the betterment of the ummah. Until you have someone who is ready to go like, no, let's go back to our faith, actual Let's see what the Prophet said, what does the Quran say about this? And let's figure out how are we going to deal with it. I was raised in Saudi Arabia. Okay, so people think this is the misassumption about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, that is a very conservative country, that these issues are not, you know, discussed openly. 
And on the contrary, actually, maybe they're not discussed openly on TV, maybe in the beginning, but now there's the changing. But the point I'm trying to get to, and to your point about education, in my schooling in Saudi Arabia, we learned about sexual intimacy rules and regulations early on. In our schools, you know, maybe even sixth grade, we learned about it in the books of uh, fiqh. So this is, uh, it's an obligation on every Muslim, whether male or female, to actually know the rules about how you are going to deal with your life in your daily life. And sex is actually part of your daily life. Uh, whether you are engaging in sex or whether you're walking in the street and, and you see something that actually arouses you and you don't know how to deal with it. So it's part of our daily life. So education, if we come back to education, it needs to be part of the education of our children without any kind of shame attached to it because it is part of our deen. So this is the piece. This is the piece that comes from the faith. Now we come to the piece of the culture. This is now an individual process, and some of us are more willing than others to actually face some of those wrong assumptions and wrong ideas in our cultures and be courageous enough to say, no, this doesn't apply, doesn't align with Islam, and I'm going to choose to actually let go of it. It's a lot of work, but I think, mashallah, with the young generation such as you, I see more of the young adults going back to their faith. And, and seeing what does it say and saying, okay, this is part of the culture. I'm going to reject it because it's part of the culture that doesn't align with Islam. And hopefully we can change things around. I think, yeah, one conversation at a time and with knowledgeable people like you who can grace us with your wisdom in regards to this topic. I think it's important. And, that, and you're right. Our faith is very empowering. And it's interesting because this is something that I, it's, it's such a naive thought. I, I once even thought that like sex was not meant for pleasure. I thought sex is just more for procreation. Anything outside of that is like haram. Can we talk about how Islam tells you that it's okay, that you should do it for pleasure? This is what connects you and your spouse to one another. The Quran even positively explains this too. So one of the one of the most beautiful hadith that I love in our tradition is the hadith about these poor people who came to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him. And they said that the rich amongst us have taken away all the rewards. They pray and fast as we do, but they also give charity out of the excess of their wealth. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, has not Allah made for you a way to give charity? In every subhanAllah you say charity. In every Allahu Akbar you say charity. In every Alhamdulillah charity. In every La ilaha illallah charity. And when you enjoin what is good is charity and when you forbid what is evil is charity. And when you engage in sexual intimacy is a charity. And that's when the companions were surprised and they're like, oh, Prophet of Allah, we seek our pleasure. And this is the key word here. We seek our pleasure and we gain reward doing it. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, don't you see, if you were to seek your pleasure in haram, would you carry a sin? And in the same way, if you were to seek your pleasure in halal, you will be rewarded. To me, like this hadith is just telling us, okay, Allah wa ta'ala, and the Prophet ﷺ, they understand human nature. And Allah is the one who created us. He's the one who created us with the sexual desire, with the sexual urge. So he knows what we need. 
And he has given us a beautiful outlet within marriage. And he says, enjoy sex. It is for you to enjoy. It's not about only having children. It's for you to really enjoy it too. That could not have been more clearer. That could not have been more black and white. And I don't know why sometimes that gets lost in translation. That's such a beautiful and direct hadith. And you said something really important, how Allah created us with a sex drive. He created us with a sex drive because he's letting us know that it is not haram to have this. In regards to sexual desires, you know, I really want to emphasize the fact that sexually empowered women and pious women are not mutually exclusive. But I, I want people to understand that sometimes just because you feel like you have this sexual drive that you're not a good Muslim or there's something wrong with you. And that's incorrect. And I see you shaking your head too, Naha. So I really want to talk about this. Before we jump into that, though, I do want to talk about the wedding night. And somebody brought up something really important. I think this also kind of, we're going to talk about the power of no, but this whole idea of having to actually consummate your marriage on the wedding night, I think that's just putting too much pressure on both the both spouses, honestly. How do we navigate that conversation in regards to just if your spouse is ready to consummate the marriage on the wedding night, but you're not? How do we take power over our bodies and allow ourselves to explain to our spouse that I am not ready to do this? Maybe she's just tired or she can be very nervous, which we're going to talk about vaginismus as well later on in the episode. But can we talk about how we can navigate that conversation right on the wedding night? I know it could be very uncomfortable. This is not a conversation that you want to have right away, but it might be necessary sometimes. So first thing that comes to my mind is actually asking every single woman who is listening to us right now is to actually uh, educate yourself. Educate yourself about the normal process of sexual desire and uh, reaching orgasm and so on for you as a woman. Educate yourself about your own body. There are many women who even don't know what is their external genital area. They have no idea. And educate yourself about knowing yourself. Also, that there are many, and this is not only for women, women and men, who don't know themselves, don't understand their feelings, don't understand what's going on with them. And in that situation, they allow things to happen to them without their own, if you will, being intentional or being even consenting. And that to me is very troublesome. I really emphasize individual responsibility in any situation that happens. I'm not saying that you are responsible for someone to, for example, rape you. That's not what I'm saying. But be aware, just be aware of what's happening around you. Be aware of what's happening within you and make decisions. You have power. You you can say no. You can say, this is what I want to do. This is what I don't want to do. But coming back to the wedding night, so first of all, educate yourself, gain the information. And then for most of the practicing Muslims, they do Ketbil Kitab first. It, it, in different cultures, they call it different things. But the religious ceremony of, you know, actually, you know, writing uh, the marriage contract and so on. And then they wait a little bit before they do the, the wedding and, you know, when they get together and, and be together in the same household. So for those people who have a waiting period between Kadbil Kitab or the Nikah and the Walima or the wedding night. I highly encourage you to actually engage in beginning to actually experience touch, like touching and kissing, just so you will begin to sensitize both of you. You will begin to sensitize yourselves to each other. Okay, this is important. So for women who have never been initiated in sex, that is a, a period of time that helps her, helps her body awaken, helps her body become more and more comfortable 
with this stranger that now she's married to. So hopefully by the time wedding night comes around, she's much more at ease with him and she can actually then be more open and receptive to the consummation. Now, there are men who are beautifully sensitive, amazingly understanding, and they, without even anyone telling them, they will take it slowly with with their bride. So they may try, attempt, and then, okay, they see, you know, the anxiety, and then they let it be. Then they could try another time, let it be. And then, you know, ultimately they reach the point where they consummate. Now let's assume the husband himself is actually unaware. Just like I gave a message to the woman, I want to give a message to the man. So for those men who are practicing and, you know, uh, and so they haven't been initiated in sex, I also invite you to learn about the sexuality of the woman. Because for you, you understanding your own sexuality is actually much easier for you because it comes up and it erupts and you don't need to read about it in a book. But you need to understand what's going on with the woman because it's kind of different than what goes on with with you as 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 a man. So understand how you need to deal with your wife. Like I'm going to mention another hadith here where the Prophet and look at the beauty and the gentleness in our tradition. Like in uh, uh, Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he tells them, you should avoid approaching your wives as an animal approaching his mate. Okay, look at the wording, right? There needs to be a messenger between you two. And the messenger is kisses and sweet talk. Like we like talk about foreplay. This is foreplay. So some men don't understand that women actually need a lot of time for foreplay. Can we talk about foreplay? Because I, I think it's something that we don't even, again, that's something that we don't think that needs to happen or something like that. I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone, but it's, no, it's necessary. And Islam actually encourages it, just like you read in the hadith. Yes. For women, women need foreplay very much, uh, much more uh, than men do. And sometimes that's why men don't understand it. Because for men, especially when they are young, their desire is very instant And they go through the sexual cycle very quickly. They can go from one stage of the sexual cycle to the other very quickly. For women, the foreplay could be the longest period before she goes into the desire and then arousal and then orgasm and so on. So extremely important. I'm going to say also for different women, her uh, style of foreplay is going to be different. And this is where it's important if there is communication and comfort. And I know for some women, it's not easy in the beginning, but with time, it becomes easier for her to say to her husband, okay, this I find erotic. This doesn't work for me. This is helping me with my, you know, with feeling more uh, arousal. She needs to tell the husband because he doesn't know. And also because his way of getting arousal is so different, dramatically different than hers. So that communication needs to happen. I also want to say that even for the same woman, sometimes one intercourse she would need, for example, more intense foreplay. Sometimes in the next uh, intercourse, no, she needs a very light, very gentle. So it's just, again, we go back to the point of knowing yourself. Being aware of what's going on with you and being able to communicate it with, with your spouse. 
I'm glad you brought up communication because I think that's really important. Oftentimes, you know, we go into the bedroom not allowing our desires to be known to our partner. I mean, so I think communication is very important in all aspects of a marriage, of a relationship. But I'm also glad that you, this is the first time I hear somebody saying this, but again, it could have been said before, but once you have your marriage certificate done and finalized, you're technically married. But at least in my specific community, we don't it's almost like we don't believe in that. It's like the wedding ceremony is a stamp of approval. That's what shows that you're married. So sometimes it's almost like, nope, you're not married until we actually see you walking down the aisle together. And that is wrong. That's not right. So I I love the idea of you encouraging spouses to kind of familiarize themselves with one another once their marriage license Islamically is complete. So why not? You know what I mean? So that is halal in itself, but it's also an act that we probably have kind of shamed too, or we're uncomfortable with. I want to talk about sexual desires before we dive into to haram versus halal. This is a question that got brought up a lot where women were saying that they feel like they have more of a higher sexual drive than their spouses. First of all, they feel shameful for it. And then second of all, they feel like they're emasculating their spouse because of it. Can we talk about this a little bit more? Because I think there's a lot of gray areas surrounding sexual desires. And I think it goes back to the idea that this notion, this cultural notion that the man is supposed to initiate the sex and not the woman. The man is supposed to approach her and say he wants sex. And the woman, it's shameful for her to ever encourage that or ask for it. Yeah, there are so many layers to the differences in sexual desire between partners. And so it's very important to say that for a couple, you need to figure out what is your situation and stop thinking about what is normal and what is abnormal, because the normal range is really, really very wide, let's say. There are men who are actually not interested in sex for any reason, I mean, they, they're just not interested in sex. That's that's their state. And it doesn't mean they don't have enough levels of testosterone, whatever it is. So let's stop worrying about why is it the situation in my couplehood? This is what's happening. And let's say this is what's happening. How are we going to deal with it? So for the women to have a higher sexual uh, desire, as you said, it is it is not perceived as normal, even though it is very normal. I want to empower us women to stop actually buying into all the perceptions that are put on us. So we are told, you know, we don't have uh, sexual desires or we have very low sexual desires. We are told we are the reasons why men, we are fitna to men. There are all sorts of things that we are told and we need to stop the propagation of these uh, perceptions about us, especially Muslim women, in addition, which is more important, we need to stop believing that. Because see, if we don't believe this as individuals, then okay, we can actually go on and move forward. The problem is when we personally believe them. I attended once a workshop on sexuality by a psychologist. Her name is Pat Love. I love the way she presented the discrepancy, the dissonance between the sexual desire of the husband and wife. And she said, sometimes the wife has more, sometimes the husband has more, it doesn't matter. But she has a formula for how to solve the discrepancy in sexual desire. So she said, the person who has a higher sexual desire decides or determines the frequency of when the intimacy is happening. The person who has the lower desire determines how is it going to be done. Is it going to be quick or is it going to be an, a prolonged, you know, episode of just, you know, touching and kissing and, and, and so on. With the woman having a higher desire, 
what comes with it is that sometimes the husband is not going to be able to have an erection. So in those couples, they need to figure out how are they together as a couple, as a we, going to satisfy her need when the husband is not able to have an erection. And they can figure it out. Every couple can figure it out. It's doable. And because especially knowing that actually more than 50% of women, they gain orgasms outside of the vaginal penetration. So they actually gain orgasm through clitoral stimulation rather than vaginal penetration and vaginal stimulation. So knowing that, then I know women who would come to me and like, oh, you know, I never have orgasm when we are having penetration. I'm like, who said you should have orgasm when you are having, when the penis is uh, in your vagina? You don't have to. If you're having orgasms uh, from the clitoral stimulation, good for you. The, the idea is just like how, you know, how is it going to work for you and, and for the couplehood? So I hope I answered the question about the higher desire for women. You definitely did. And you provided a lot of context. What do we do in the opposite side of that, of that question in regard or that situation? What if there's a lack of intimacy? How do you communicate that to your partner that I, I'm wanting to be more intimate with you, but he or she doesn't want to be more intimate? So there is that lack of intimacy and it gets to the point where it becomes a sexless marriage. So you almost kind of become like roommates now at this point. You know, um, when I hear that, I hear that there is a deeper problem. It's not about the sex now. It's actually about the emotional relationship. And so there has to be something around building that emotional relationship. And also there has to be some dispelling of some beliefs, wrong beliefs about sex. Okay, because as you said, the most frequent word attached to sex is shame. So like, okay, shame for lack of performance. Shame because I have a higher desire. Shame, there are so many shoulds and, and shame statements surrounding it. So dispelling all of this, all of these shame statements is important. But I find that the key issue in a sexless marriage is actually maybe there is no emotional intimacy. So this is where we actually need to begin. I I really do want to talk about emotional intimacy. I think that would be a great idea for us to talk about it real quickly before we talk about haram versus halal, because I think it's important to have that bond, that emotional bond with your partner. And it might answer your questions in regards to, like you said, lack of intimacy. So I, I'm just going to answer that question by a story. Um, I'm rereading the book by Stephen Covey, May He Rest in Peace. I love this book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So anyone who didn't read it, go ahead and read it. It's a very powerful book. So I was just reading the story. And so Stephen Covey, in one of his workshops, he is approached by a man and he comes to the man, the man comes to him and he said, hey, Stephen, you know, I don't love my wife anymore. And then uh, Stephen says, he responds to him and he says, just love her. And then the guy says, but I'm telling you, I don't love her. We had all these feelings before and now we have kids and we're busy and so on. And then Stephen says again, just love her. And then he says, I'm telling you, I don't love her. (laughs) And (laughs) And he says to him, love is a verb. Love is a verb. What are you doing for her? You can love her through your actions. You can do things for her. You can support her. You can encourage her. And then love the feelings will come. So in emotional intimacy, what is happening when I hear about people saying we don't have that anymore is they have stopped working on the marriage. 
they actually maybe had those very intense, passionate feelings in the beginning of the relationship that are usually not based on work. They're only based on, oh, he's handsome, she's pretty, she comes from a good family. It's like those, you know, emotions that are related to your hormones, but they're not necessarily related to how much effort into you're putting into the relationship. For emotional intimacy to happen, there needs to be a focus on the spouse rather than I'm focusing on me. Oh, my spouse is not doing this for me. He or she is not da, 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 da. That, that's what kills emotional intimacy. That, that's a great response. And I'm glad you shared that story because not often do we think about love being an actual verb. We just think it's a feeling. It just happens. It comes out of nowhere. No, it's, it's something that you have to constantly work on. I want to shift this conversation to address the topic of haram versus halal. I feel like there's a lot of gray area as well surrounding that. And maybe we can start with what Islam considers to be haram, 100% no gray area surrounding it. If we can start from there. And then I just have other questions that, you know, a lot of people People ask that, yeah, even myself, I don't know if it's haram or halal, or is there a way to do it in a halal manner? And if you don't, is it considered haram? Let's start from the topic of what is haram or what is considered haram in Islam? Yes, yes. Okay. So what is very clearly haram, and there are no questions about it, is anal sex. Okay. That's definitely haram. Uh, what is also uh, haram is not having, is, is having sex outside of marriage. I know it's a given, but I need to emphasize it, okay? And what is haram is having intercourse, actual vaginal penetration during the period of the woman, because they can actually engage in other forms of sexual intimacy as long as it does not include vaginal uh, penetration during the period. And intercourse is not, and vaginal penetration specifically is also not permitted during Ramadan, during fasting. Not not after iftar. After iftar, of course, you can have intercourse. Those are the things. How many did I count? I think four. They're not many. But we complicate the issue so much, <laughs> then it becomes prohibitive for our young people. And then they, they start thinking to themselves, okay, so you know what? Just this is way too much. This is so complicated. You know what? I'm just a bad person who doesn't follow Islam. And, and to me, that's the saddest saddest piece is when someone decides I'm not a good Muslim and I can't do anything about it and um, what a loss. It truly is. It truly is a loss because it starts impacting all different parts of their lives too. Not even just the intimacy, but every other relationship in their life. The whole point of you bringing up the penetration during menstruation, I was reading something and it said from an actual medical point of view, the reason why you shouldn't do it is because there is like, I guess, a harmful toxic substance, I guess, that does flow out of us and it needs to flow out of us. So if you're being penetrated, obviously that kind of blocks the flow. Another thing that's very taboo that we need to talk about, and when I say taboo, I'm not saying that we should make it halal. I'm saying why this is haram and why sometimes it, it hurts a marriage is the topic of porn. And I've heard this before. I've heard these conversations happening, but I think it's it's important that we do emphasize that because there's a lot of unrealistic expectations placed on a marriage because of what they see in entertainment. And it's, again, it's unrealistic. It's not real. So can we talk about the impacts of porn in marriages? So porn, when, when someone is looking at porn, they're basically looking at something haram because they are looking at the aura of other people. So I, I, usually people don't talk about that. So I want to emphasize that the actual looking itself 
is wrong <laughs> because our aura is very private and we are asked to be to be decent we are asked to actually not taint uh, our eyes and our sights with with things that are considered private and belonging to other people so this is one the other thing is porn brings sex into like more of animalistic encounter rather than the close intimate relationship it's supposed to be between a husband and a wife unfortunately a person who engages in watching watching porn all the time on an unconscious level is already seeing sex as that and is losing that very beautiful connection with his spouse or her spouse because there are women who watch porn so let's be clear it's not only men there are women who watch porn maybe the percentage is not as high as men but that's that's within our community so i'm not talking about outside the muslim community even so that's another thing another layer to this with watching porn you start needing more and more intense uh, visual stimulation and so then you lose your sensitivity to the uh, sexual uh, dynamic or sexual cycle and you need more and more and in that process you actually even lose the ability to perform in your relationship with your spouse and that's the impact on the marriage and sometimes sometimes i haven't really done a study about it but i have a hunch that sometimes when i have couples muslim couples coming to me and telling me that the wife has a higher sexual desire than her husband that the husband is maybe engaging in porn and that's why she feels that she has a higher percentage she has a higher desire than him okay so that's a hunch sometimes for me it needs to i i cannot assume it with a couple i have to wait until it comes up in therapy and then you know work with that is it just sometimes for men is it just more of like an efficient way to get an erection rather than actually doing the act itself sometimes thank you that's exactly what i okay. was going to tell you exactly thank you. it is it's a much more efficient way it's very quick and it's very selfish okay they don't need to worry about yeah. <laughs> Uh, how is his wife feeling right now? Does she no more need more stimulation? They don't need to be patient with her. Wh- whatever it is, it's just like okay, in and out, and I'm done. It's very unfortunate. But as we're talking about porn, I also want to talk about masturbation. I want to talk about it from the aspect of doing it with your spouse, and the other side of it is a haram to do it by yourself. And I mean, we just talked about it, but if we can just very clearly talk about that as well as oral sex too. Yeah, so let's begin with uh, masturbation before marriage because that's a big issue. So there are also differences of opinion about whether it's haram or permissible to do masturbation before marriage. This applies to both men and women. I'm not talking about one gender here. So the opinion because there are people who completely say it's forbidden haram, but um, the opinion I'm I'm more comfortable with is the opinion where it says it's not recommended However, you see, and it's not recommended is different than it's haram, completely different, two different levels, but it's not recommended. However, if a person feels that their sexual desire is really so strong for them and they are not using or they have a hard time using the other prophetic invitations to how to tame sexual desire before marriage, such as fasting, exercise, 
engaging in other activities because when you do this, you actually release some of your uh, sexual energy in other ways. Okay, when you're fasting or doing activities and so on. So it's not recommended. However, if, if a person's sexual desire is so strong for them that they could they could fall into haram, then they can do masturbation. I hope I'm very clear here. However, it should not be a, a regular practice. It shouldn't become like something, oh, I'll just go to and do it, okay? And my concern with masturbation for young people, this is especially young boys. There are some young boys who do not know how to emotionally regulate. And then masturbation becomes their emotional release. And they actually become addicted to masturbation, even if they're not watching porn. But nowadays, with the access, very easy access to porn, the two have become associated, like a masturbation and porn are coming together. And so when they become addicted to these two, definitely the marriage is going to be impacted. And I want to also say here that if a husband has been addicted to porn, it doesn't mean that they don't have hope. There is hope, but he has to be committed he has to be committed to actually working on it. And what does working on it mean? It means that he has to be very firm in stopping to watch porn, very firm on not masturbating on his own, very firm on working with his wife and being open with his wife. And for those husbands, they, for them specifically, it will be very important that once they have an erection, they actually do penetration very quickly because they do not maintain erections. They can't unfortunately, because of the addiction. So now we talked about masturbation before marriage. Let's come into masturbation within the marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. It becomes part of the dance, sexual dance between the husband and wife, as long as it's done with respect and with understanding the wishes of both, uh, both sides. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that helped a lot of people because there was always gray areas surrounding that. And I think because masturbation sometimes is very closely tied to porn, which we know is haram. So it kind of almost shames masturbation as well, which you cleared it up for us. In regards to oral sex, what is the context surrounding that? Is that something that's okay to be done? If so, how does somebody ease into it? Because I know a lot of women struggle with that, at least the women that have personally messaged me. And they said they their partner wants that, but they don't know how to ease into it. So there is nothing specific in our tradition that says uh, very clearly oral sex is haram. Some scholars, they use some interpretations of some verses to mean that oral sex is haram. I personally don't see anything that says very clearly it's haram. And then I take that opinion. If it's not clearly stated haram, then it's not haram. Now, the important issue with oral sex is actually the comfort, the comfort with doing it. Because some people are disgusted by oral sex. And if you are, whether you're a man or you're a woman who are someone who's disgusted by you need to say it. You need to say it and you need to say, no, I'm not going to do this. Unless I'm comfortable with it, I'm not going to do it. And this is part of your power in the relationship. And you have that power. So keep this in mind and and all power to you say, no, that's not something I want to do. Speaking of power, Naha, I would like to talk about the power of no, because there is a hadith that maybe a lot of people have translated it to better fit their needs. But the I think you know where I'm going with this is when a woman doesn't want to have sex. Can we talk about the power of no and how this is a right that we have and we can say no regardless of 
how you translate it or how you have interpreted this hadith? I'm going to maybe somewhat touch upon how the phrasing of the hadith, because it's important, actually. So the phrasing of the hadith says something like, if a man invites his wife to bed and she refrains or she refuses and he sleeps while he's angry, okay, because these are key words here, then she would be cursed by the angels until morning. First of all, I want to say this hadith is not in Sahih al-Bukhari, is not in Sahih, it's in Sahih Muslim and Sunan Abu Dawood and Nisa'i. So it's in three of the six major hadith books. So it's not like something that all hadith books agree on. Let's let's begin with that. Because that that puts it in a different category than hadith that is, you know, agreed upon by Bukhari and Muslim. It's not in that level of hadith. That's one. Number two, which is very important. This hadith is not addressed to the man. Okay, that's very important to me because this hadith does not give the man power over the woman. Like if the hadith, I'm, I'm just yani, going to say, like, let's assume the hadith says something like, oh, you man, you, you have the right to have your woman have sex with you every single time. That's a hadith that is addressed to the man. That's not the case here. Okay, this is a hadith between the woman and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the key here is, is he angry or is he not angry? That's, that's another key that gets lost in the translation of this hadith, okay? So this is how I take the hadith. The hadith is about working on the connection, okay? So a woman has a right to say no. She needs to explain this to her husband why she's no, even if it's simply I am tired. That is a very legitimate excuse that she can say to her husband. However, she needs to keep in mind that she cannot say I'm tired every single night, she needs to understand that she is part of a team, she is part of a partnership, and her partner has a need that she, only she can satisfy. Because I don't think she would be okay with her husband going and satisfying his need through porn or through a prostitute. She will not be okay with that. So she needs to work with him. She needs to understand his need. The other piece that is very important here is this is not... The reasons why a woman is going to say no have to be legitimate. So it cannot be that I am punishing my husband. It can't be like I was upset with him because whatever reason. So I'm going to actually abstain from sex to punish him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows the intentions and he knows what is going on with us. So just to be a team player just to be a partner. This is what is meant by this hadith. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> and it's not talking about Allah cursing you. I want to also emphasize that, subhanAllah. So, but emphasizing ultimately, you have a right to say no. They need to be legitimate reasons. If you are uh, in the marriage where, like we said earlier, you have a lower desire, then actually work with your husband to have the frequency that he wants. But you start saying, okay, let's have a quickie today because I'm, I'm just tired. I'm not in the mood of, uh, for it. I can just satisfy you and pleasure you and, and we're done. And when I started doing this with my couples, explaining that you know formula that Dr. Pat Love has given, I tell them, how long does it take? If you are just doing this for you know your husband, how long does the whole thing take? It rarely takes more than 10 minutes. Rarely. Sometimes it's even less. So just, I, I tell them, okay, I want you to think to yourself, if you know it's not going to take a long time, then you can be prepared mentally to help him and be a team player and a partner. 
And, you know, sometimes in the process, you will find that you actually are aroused and you end up with an orgasm. So like it's a bonus for you. Thank you for sharing that. No, thank you for clearing that up because that's something that a lot of people have used. And like I said, they've just used it very loosely. I just have a few more questions. And one of them being is, how often do you think a couple should be physically intimate with one another for it to be considered healthy? There's this like this gray area between you feeling like, oh, there's a lack of intimacy versus, oh no, we're doing it enough times for it to be considered healthy. I personally think it's maybe more so a case by case, but I just want to get your opinion on this. It's definitely case by case. Yes, uh, the, uh, even in all the studies about sexuality and couplehood, there is a wide range of uh, frequency averages in the couples. So again, we go back to what is normal and not normal. What is normal is your situation. Look at it. And then the, the other thing about being healthy and the frequency being healthy is are the needs being satisfied? The needs of both of them. And that takes us back to the differences in, in desire. And sometimes maybe the needs are not going to be satisfied 100%, but at least are they satisfied more often than not? That's a good enough way of assessing. Of gauging it, yeah. The last question I would have, or the last two questions, one of them would be the whole notion of bleeding on the first night. I think there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding that, again, because of cultural standards. And I feel like this condition also goes hand in hand with it, which is vaginismus. If we can further explain what vaginismus is, is it treatable? Can she overcome it? Um, I don't know if I'm even using the right terminology, so forgive me. And then again, bleeding on the first night. I just want to put a public message out there to those who don't understand how that sometimes works. So if you can definitely help us with that, if with those two topics, and then I just have one more question for you, inshallah. So let's begin with the bleeding on the first night. So not all women are going to bleed on the first night. And the bleeding usually is because the hymen, which is a very thin membrane, half an inch into the vag vagina. So like when the penis penetrates, it's penetrating the vagina of the woman. And so for a woman who has never been initiated into sex or has never had vaginal intercourse, the hymen is intact. And it's like, a, again, a very thin membrane, half an inch into the opening of the vagina. So when the first penetration happens, the hymen breaks and it's a membrane, it's a live tissue. So then bleeding happens. However, there are women who whose hymen okay, is not intact, not because they're not virgins, it's just because they had had, for example, physical activities before that tended to stretch their uh, vagina and then the hymen broke. Or sometimes they say when a woman engages in horse riding. So there are there are situations where the hymen will not be there on the on the day of the uh, wedding. And it does not indicate lack of virginity. Again, we go back to culture and Islam. Again, we go back there. It is unfortunate. Unfor I've heard, I, I can't remember who told me this, but somebody has in their culture that the family of the husband, they have to come the next day and they have to see some kind of proof yeah. that the woman had blood or there was blood on that day. I said so... <laughs> That against Islam because it goes into the private private situations between husband and and woman. So let me say, like there is a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that you know amongst you are those who will occupy the worst position in the sight of Allah on the day of judgment is the man who confides in his wife and she in him, and then he spreads her secrets. To me, okay, that's spreading yeah. her secret. Like you're just telling to the, oh, look at the blood, horrible, disgusting. 
So we need to, again, I think we emphasized it a lot in this podcast, we need to step away from the cultural edicts of our ethnic groups and move back into the pure Islamic tradition that does not condone any emphasis on, on any of this stuff at all. So to be, so for a husband, like, let's assume your first night, no bleeding happened. As long as you don't have evidence, because this is what Islam says, you have to have evidence to accuse anyone of uh, adultery or fornication. You cannot just randomly. There is actually a punishment for anyone who accuses without evidence. So as long as you don't have evidence, you cannot accuse your wife that she had sexual relations. Inshallah <laughs> That's the key word of this podcast. Inshallah for everything, for all of these topics. And yeah, yes, vaginismus. Yes. I'm glad you're bringing that up. Is it treatable? And when I say by that, is there counseling for it? What, what can we do about it if we are going through that? And why? Why does that happen sometimes to some women? So I think vaginismus is uh, on the rise just because of a lot of anxiety about performance, a lot of anxiety about whether I'm desirable or not. I'm talking about the woman now specifically, especially with uh, the rise in like now on social media, all the women you see on social media are just really very beautiful. So a woman sometimes feels she cannot compete and then she comes into the marriage feeling less than. And she's so worried about her husband who's exposed to all these beautiful women, whether at work or in the street or whatever. And so she starts, she starts shrinking into herself. She starts tensing into herself. She starts blocking herself from opening herself to him because she's so worried about his rejection. So at the core of vaginismus is actually anxiety and the anxiety is in our brain. So there needs to be a lot of work on what is she thinking. So I would highly, highly encourage her to start journaling and to figure out what are her blocks, her mental blocks. And then also at the same time, definitely she needs to do uh, go and do a physical exam because sometimes there is actually a physical impediment to to the penetration. So just to check this out, make sure nothing is you know going on there. And right now in the medical field, what they recommend for vaginismus is physical therapy, specific physical therapy for the, uh, the pelvic muscles and also uh, using dilators. So basically the woman I heard from someone the other day that, which was so lovely, I, I love this. Her husband, she has vaginismus. She's having a hard time, you know, with the consummation. Her husband is again, one of those sensitive and loving husbands. I love this. So he bought her different, you know, dilators in different sizes so she can, you know, begin to uh, sensitize herself and open her vagina slowly, you know, so she can she can uh, receive him. And then so mental blocks through journaling, physical activity or physical therapy for the pelvic area using dilators. And the last one is actually open communication with the husband, because, you know, when there is a sense of safety and a sense of trust between the husband and wife, that actually kind of releases the mental blocks and helps the woman, you know, calm down. Also, I'm important to say foreplay. Foreplay, extremely important in this case. And the other thing I also tell my couples is if they are experiencing this challenge, to have intimacy, not with the expectation of reaching penetration, but like just have intimacy, like kiss and cuddle and touch and do massages for each other 
no expectation at all of orgasm and to do this for days you know with a, and then slowly they will find themselves reaching the point where the penetration can happen that that's great advice right there and like you said uh, the anxiety can also come from just like your spouse seeing you naked for the first time that's something that you are not doing on a daily basis this is your spouse for the first time you got married for the first time so there's anxiety a lot of anxiety within that and just even like I said maybe even just the lack of knowledge surrounding this topic the topic of intimacy within marriage is not knowing what is meant to happen how you're supposed to feel how to make your spouse feel so I hope this conversation clears a lot of these misconceptions um, for a lot of people I think last say I want to leave it on I wish I could leave it on a positive note but maybe we can but just like there's a lot of women that don't know when it's grounds for divorce when they don't feel sexually compatible with their spouse they don't feel any intimacy they've tried and nothing is changing I guess I guess if you're past the whole point of salvaging it is it possible to you know cite a divorce in this case just for this reason oh yeah 100 percent yeah, that, that's definitely uh, one of the main reasons, actually, in the books of fuck, one of the many reasons where any, whether the woman or the husband can actually go and seek divorce because of that issue, the lack of compatibility in sexual, uh, like a husband being impotent is a reason for a woman to seek divorce. There are some opinions that are different on whether she knew before or whether she knew after, stuff like that. But to me, I go back to, is she being harmed? Like, let's assume she knew before that he's impotent and then she decided, no, it's okay, I can manage. And then she marries him and then she discovered that she cannot manage. Okay, she's being harmed. And we have a major principle in Islam, no harm is allowed. So if there is harm, then definitely there is grounds for divorce. However, having said that, there are women who choose to stay in a marriage when the husband is impotent, but they need to make a choice. It, I, I want to emphasize the, the idea of choice. There is always choice, guys. There is choice in saying, no, I don't have sex now. There is choice in saying, no, I don't have oral sex there is choice in saying, okay, this is not working for me in terms of, you know, whether sexual compatibility or what have you, and I need to leave. But I want everybody who's making a choice to be aware, what, what is the choice? What is it based on? What, what are you making the choice for? I want people to own responsibility because this is what I, I get frustrated with a lot is people who go, I, I, I can't do anything about it. I say, no, there is always something to be done. Just own responsibility and accountability. Just because something bad happened to you doesn't mean you don't have power. You have power. Just figure out what is it going to be. It's how you react and how you reflect to anything that happens to you. Sometimes you're not in control of what happens to you, but you are definitely 100% in control of how you're going to move forward and how you're going to react and how you're going to allow whatever happens to you to impact your life. And I'm, I'm learning that myself through therapy. And I, I highly encourage people to seek therapy. Um, and if you want to ease yourself into therapy, maybe just find a mentor, someone close close to you that understands you, that, that can give you sound advice. But I think therapy is very, very helpful. Is there any positive pieces of advice or wisdom that you want to leave us with before we part with? just for anybody who, again, has been struggling with this or, you know, didn't have the necessary knowledge in regards to sexual intimacy and in Islam. Just seek more knowledge, educate yourself, focus on uh, what is under your control, take action. Uh, and like Stephen Covey t told the guy, love her. So love him or love her. <laughs> 
And and this is actually rooted in our tradition, and maybe that's what we'll end with. The ayah that a lot of scholars recite in terms of the marriage is the ayah in Surah Tabroom, which talks about how Allah created us in couplehood so that we come together for tranquility, for calm, and for mawadda. Sakina, mawadda, and rahma. Three key words for marriage. Sakina, mawadda, rahma. So I want to emphasize mawadda. Mawadda in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though in the Quran he uses the word hub, which means love in English, he did not use the word hub in this ayah. And you would, for the longest time, I'm like, you know, maybe Allah knew because there are so many marriages, especially in the beginning with arranged marriages that did not, were not established on hub or on love or so on. Until I understood the deeper meaning of mawadda. So mawadda is like love in action. To me, like what Stephen Covey was telling the guy is like do action to love her. And that's what Allah tells us in this ayah. So let's remember that, that marriage is about teamwork. And it's not about what your partner is actually giving you or doing for you. It's what are you doing? What are you giving to the relationship? And focus on that. And if after you do everything in your power for the relationship, the relationship is still not working for you, then assess whether you need to leave with a clean conscience, with a clean heart and knowing that you have done everything in your power. Thank you. Thank you so much for this, Naha. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for opening the conversation around something that has been so taboo and sometimes oftentimes shamed. But thank you for clearing the air for us. I think this conversation was very helpful for me personally, not to be selfish, but I really truly hope that it helped a lot of the listeners because I think it answered a lot of questions, a lot of misconceptions that we've had. I definitely don't want this to end here. I want people to be able to find you on social media or what are other resources that you have that I would love for for people to be able to connect with you on? So I have a YouTube channel and it's called Sakina Counseling, S-A-K-I-N-A, Sakina Counseling. That's the YouTube channel. It has a lot of videos, whether related to marriage or uh, parenting, because that's the other piece that's very unpassionate about. Facebook, I am under Noha Al-Shigayri and uh, I have an Instagram account that I'm still warming up to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then definitely I have a website. That's also sakinacounseling.com. And as always, I'm going to make sure I link all of these sites to our episode show notes so people can easily access them. And once again, Noha, thank you so much. I'm forever indebted to you for just opening up this conversation. And I felt I, I, I'm still nervous about this about this topic, but you made me feel very comfortable in asking certain questions. Um, so inshallah, we can get to the point where we can just publicly discuss this. I think it would be beautiful to even see this discussed in our Masajid and other community centers just openly and in a safe space. Of course, we always want to make sure that we're discussing these things in a safe space where people do feel comfortable. So thank you so much, Naha. And inshallah, I can have you once more on this podcast because it was just a delight to just have this conversation with you. I enjoyed being with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.